Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Dan Conway. His new book is Confessions of a Crypto Millionaire, My Unlikely Escape from Corporate America. For years, Dan scuffed his way up the corporate ladder. He made a good salary, just enough to support his family and save for a distant retirement. His perky LinkedIn profile should have said he was a caged animal, looking to escape by any means necessary. Facing career turmoil, bills, and an existential crisis, he turned to a corporate killer blockchain called Ethereum, which promised to upend work as we know it. Statistics show most people hate their jobs. Are we broken or is the system? How much would you risk for your financial independence? His story answers these questions and more. It's a great book. We had a great conversation about it. I give you Dan Conway. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here. Uh, It's great to have you. And you've written a new book. Uh, but it's interesting and the forward to it, you are in the, on the, um, bio, the little bio piece, you say that you are a former high school, uh, office holder. And so I wanted to ask you, I, I too am a former high school elected official. And I wanted to ask you, uh, what, uh, what office you held. <laughs> Thanks Scott. Yeah, it was a, it was a bit tongue in cheek because, uh, you know, I, I wanted from the very beginning, I wanted to make sure that people didn't think that I was writing this book as some big master of the universe. Like you too can be a crypto millionaire. That said, I titled that because it tested better than anything. And I definitely wanted a readership. Um, but it, you know, I was, I was high school. Let me see. I was class president, my sophomore and junior year. And then I was student body vice president. I say, because I didn't want the great responsibility of being student body president. And I still have minor regrets uh, about that. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so it's kind of tongue in cheek, but you know, I think there is a little bit of pride there for that actually still. Well, I, I, I was like, I was senior class president and I thought like, should we call each other? You know how like in debates, like even if you're retired, like if you're a Mr. G- Governor, Mr. I went like, should I call you vice? Pre- I mean, vice president was technically your highest thing, even though that would mean I would be Mr. President, but your vice presidential thing was higher than the class president. I mean, it's, I was thinking, what would we call each other for honorifics? You know, do people still call you that, Mr. Vice President? <laughs> that, I would have people call me that, like Mr. Vice President. You know? Yeah, you know, I would prefer that. Why don't I call you Ambassador and ambassador. you can call me uh, Justice? What about Chancellor? <laughs> I love it. It's great. Yeah, this is going to make my head even bigger here. I've written a book about myself. Now I'm asking people to call me Chancellor. Yes, I like it. Yeah, your book is Confessions of a Crypto Millionaire, Most Unlikely Escape from Corporate America. And you talk about sort of like, it's interesting because part of the way you describe life in corporate America is sort of the way that uh, the the character, the main character in Fight Club is describing life. Like he's like sort of buying stuff he doesn't need on the toilet on Ikea, you know, like he's just, he's kind of punching <laughs> the clock. Like it's sort of, he's like a cog in a sort of capitalist machine and, and sort of, you know, he, he just feels trapped. And, and that's kind of the sense I had that you were sort of, you were like a semi successful in corporate life. Like it seemed like you were making decent money, not killing it, but you weren't doing poorly. And 
it seemed like so much of, of your frustrations were feeling like your life was not in your control that, you know, that you talk about the machines. I love this line. You're talking about, it's like the matrix, the machines, right? And they, these are the people yeah. that kind of, uh, keep the policies, you know, in line and keep us sort of, you know, uh, keep us towing the line. And, and, and you, 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 again, well, had some success, but it was a pretty frustrating life. Yeah. It, it's, you know, first of all, let's just acknowledge this is, I, I had a first world problem. I was not a refugee. I was not my wife and I raising three kids. We were not falling abjectly into poverty. We could pay our bills. So, you know, you have to acknowledge that up front and put it in the right scale. That said, um, yeah, I never, you know, we only get one life and, and working in corporate America, I did, I did feel trapped. I did feel like something just wasn't right at my core. And, uh, it, it just felt like, and, you know, I noticed this in my coworkers and a lot of studies have shown it that it's just, you know, in a lot of ways for many of us, it's a miserable existence yet. It's, uh, you know, the, the most, the, the, the easiest and the most available path to develop a middle-class or upper middle-class lifestyle. So I was semi-successful and there were real, like real high points along the way, but I always sabotaged it along the way. Some insecurity, some flaw, some blind spot would surface and I'd say something stupid in a meeting. Um, I would, I would do something stupid. I would lose my self-confidence at a critical moment. I felt like my work was, was good, but when you get past a certain point, part of the work also requires this kind of like executive presence and this like, you know, I am a leader and I am exhibiting leadership. And, if I'm honest, I was never comfortable in that role. It just did. It, it, Do you uh, think it's because you never got to student body president being number two? <laughs> Do you think had you got had you risen to the whole student body, you would have had that executive presence that would <laughs> like you talk about uh, yeah. this. Yeah, you have this great story. You talk about the flip side of this insecure person, the bedwetting, insecure kind of shadow side, and you just talk about how you killed it at this one meeting, and then you're like on the plane feeling like all right, I killed it, and you just get like too chatty with this executive. And all of a sudden, it's like, that guy's creeping me out, dude. And you hear back from somebody else, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, you know, in, in recovery circles, we call it an inferior uh, a um, uh, inferiority complex. Oh, gosh, it's leaving me right now. My flip side's jumping in right now. It's what, what basically what it is, is um, I, 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 I also can have illusions of grandeur. And so when I, at this, the meeting you're discussing, I was with the CEO and a big meeting in Denver and we were flying, I was flying one of the people flying with him on a private jet and uh, the meeting went well. And I just sort of suddenly had this illusion of grandeur, not even something rationally intellectually, but just something I felt. And on the airplane, I started chatting him up. And uh, you know, I heard afterwards, I invaded his personal space. And that was the kind of thing that I did. Did it was you maybe... like put your arm on his shoulder? What'd you do? Like, what was like, were you like, were you Come like, on, wow. old man, let's talk. No, I, I think, I think, I, you know, I was trying, it's like one of those things you replay in your, in your mind. I think I told him about my family and some things, uh, make some anecdotes about some things in my private life. Then I started asking him about his, I, I don't think it was like too extreme, but when you get to that level, there's just a certain, like very, uh, very certain way you need to act. And I could just never do it. I'd say a joke and it would go too far or I would, you know, halfway through, just like I just did, frankly, lose my train of thought. I just didn't have that executive presence. So you're kind of, so you, uh, but you do plod through and, it, and it, my sense, so you, you say in the beginning of the book that you changed the names to protect uh, the, the seemingly guilty <laughs> people that irritated you. But you, you, you protect the name of this corporation that you left, but 
You were doing, were you doing PR stuff at the time for them? Cause I know you later did PR stuff. Was that what you were doing in the corporate structure too? I was, yeah, I was doing, I was doing that work. And, you, and I mean, you talk about like, you know, these sort of the New York versus the California side and all these sort of uh, kind of frustrating decision-making processes and things like this that, that are going on. And, and you realize at some point that you're like, yeah, you have this great line in the book. You say, it's like um, in the Soviet Union when you didn't ask to get that photo with Stalin and the people that, you know, you're pretty much dead. Like they, like they're writing about projects you're working on and you're not mentioned in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And eventually you're just like, I love that line too. You're like, you know, I always ask in the movies when they're like taking someone down to get executed, like, why don't they fight back or something? And you're just like, I know why. Cause they're tired. I was just tired. Right. And so you, you, you see, they put you in the boardroom and they just say, Hey, we got no use for you anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what basically happened. And you know, one of the reasons why I don't mention the name of the company and I have kind of a carefully crafted, legally crafted acknowledgement up front is that, um, you know, I feel like I'm most guilty. I, I didn't fit in with them sort of just as much as I feel like the way that this company and, and they're very similar to most companies is structured that the, that, 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 so it was kind of, it was kind of both things. And, and one of the things I'm sure we'll talk about in a few minutes is that it, you know, it's, it's, it's not the people, it's the institutions and the way they've been crafted. But, but anyway, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's so true in a corporation, especially, you know, I was, I was there for six years in this big company and you just can read the tea leaves in these emails and you can see from like a resignation note for example, okay, that guy was forced out. Okay, oh, oh, looks like some his underling took his job, or oh, wow, they're canceling the whole project, and and you you just get a sense of the tea leaves. And when the tea leaves started for turn started to turn turn for me, you know, it was just it was obvious to me, and sadly for everyone else, like okay, this guy's going to be gone. It's just a matter of when. It's interesting because you quote Harari in the book, that book uh, Sapiens, and, and you talk about his insight that we're made or a species made to work together, but you're sort of like, and this is why corporations exist, right? Because they can make work efficient. Like they can, it can harness human energy in ways that, you know, can give incentives and things like that. But you're like, at what point does it, does it break down? And, and you're right. It is, it does seem almost inevitable, right? I mean, you, you start off with this visionary. I mean, I remember hearing the CEO of Bumble get interviewed and, you know, she basically was, you know, had, has this great attempt to sort of maintain this sort of creative culture that, that started the thing. But I mean, inevitably that stuff breaks down, right? And the thing becomes a creature of itself. Yeah. It's it, obviously as human beings, um, we, we need to, we need to work together, but it, it just, it feel and, and Harari's book is brilliant and it talks about how we develop that way. And it's kind of like uh, humanity's superpower, but it, it seems like somewhere along the line to me, that creating these more and more centralized organizations with hierarchies and uh, very detailed org charts and big bureaucracies and then a corporate culture that requires a certain kind of way of being uh, to go along with that has, has made people miserable. And, it, and, 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 it, and it, a lot, if you look at the studies, a lot of us, a lot of us are. So yeah, that was the kind of the point I was trying to make there. Yeah, it's at Max Weber talks about this, like the disenchantment of modernity and the iron trap of modernity. And it's like we have a, it's great, right? Because there's no better time to be alive in the sense of life expectancy, disease, safety, violence, all this stuff. And yet it does feel kind of soulless. Like there's a cost to all that efficiency and all that material blessing, right? Yeah. And I don't know, I don't know, maybe you probably know, but, um, someone said about men, uh, men, and I mean, that time means men and women of living lives of quiet desperation. 
Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, was that was that Thoreau? Thoreau, I think it was Thoreau. Yeah, Thoreau. But and that that's that's what I felt. You know, I going to an office all day and working in this strict environment. I, you know, my personality never really fit in there, and I had limited success to 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 kind of carve my personality into a way that would succeed. And sometimes even the more successful I was doing it, the less happy I was. But you know, of course, we all have to make a living. And again, this is a first world problem. But you know what? At the same time, you only get one life. So yeah, yes, I, yeah, I had all I was provided for and I had enough food and a nice home. But hey, you're, you know, you're in your 80s and you, you die and you've lived your whole life in this sort of like sterile environment didn't, that didn't work for you. And, you know, I, I started to think, gosh, I started to think about financial independence at various points in my career to be like, how can I, how can I get out of this? How can I find a way? Yeah, it, it, it also strikes me too because you're you're very forthright about your struggles with alcohol and also with with later with Vicodin and and in this quiet desperation sort of self medication and it seems like so much so many people who I mean I think we all struggle with this this version of like seeing ourselves you know projecting ourselves versus really being ourselves and I think people that have struggled right in, in addiction recovery that's that that can really be exacerbated this tension of i i, I feel like i'm trapped i can't be who i really want to be so I, I'll, I'll sort of self-medicate to to get more you know to get release or 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 to deal with the stress of not getting to be myself and it seems like this corporate pressure cooker like the kind of culture you're in seems like toxic for someone that who has a dark who shadow side can lead to self-medication. It just seems like that's going to really put the finger on the pressure point. Yeah, it, it was. It absolutely was. Now, I'm an addict, and I would have probably gotten there regardless of what environment I was in. So I can't blame my addiction on you know a certain company. But it was a perfect storm of me. I hadn't drank for 10 years, and I started drinking again. Then I got some Ambien. Then I got some Vicodin, and then I needed more Vicodin. And you can see where this is leading. At the same time, I was starting this new job, and I was feeling so much like a fish out of water. Water. I mean, there's imposter syndrome, but I was like, I felt like a real life imposter. And the other thing is for an addict that's uh, is no matter what substance I took, alcohol, Vicodin, Oxy, uh, Oxys, any anything, it gave me energy, you know. And 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 what I did was, I mean, really, the thing I did on these drugs and and alcohol and chewing tobacco and all sorts of other love, lovely substances was answer more emails. I mean, I would be up. Till two thirty, three in the morning. Sometimes I, I had just an insane amount of emails at this job, more than I ever had. It was, it was. I don't think anyone could have like replied to them all. I probably could have done better in triage mode, but I was, uh, I was just really struggling to keep up. And when I was on these substances, two, three, four hours would go by. Sometimes I'd send a note. Uh, my boss finally said, like. Listen, uh, don't send these notes at two in the morning. You are looking unhinged, and she already thought I was unhinged, even from my first day. Um, but, but, <laughs> and I probably was, uh, probably in, in in honesty. But, but uh, then I would save all the emails so that, like, at the six in the morning, I would they would all come at once. So <laughs> it would be so people would get these emails. They get like ten emails from me at once when I downloaded, and I was like, yo, hey, I can play that email game as well, people. So if you were present, would you be like tweeting at four in the morning? <laughs> That's that's where I would have gone probably uh, if I had kept my addiction and my uh, undiagnosed mental illness going. Yes, you know, I, I, one of the things that I, I appreciate about the way you tell your story is capturing emotional moments in ways that are so poignant. And you talk about going around the corner and asking somebody for Vikes or Vicodins, and you have this great line. You say, "I just committed a felony." Like, and it's great because like you're like, "I just bought this drug illegally," and you're like, it, "I don't feel like a felon," but like. 
I, I just did. I just crossed a line. And you're like, it's so interesting because it, it, you know, the feeling it's subtle and yet you knew it. And like so often along the way in your story, you identify these points that are like trouble zones and, and you tell them with poignancy that I, that I, I mean, I don't know if, if you were journaling at the time or, or, or you just have a good emotional memory, but it seems like when you tell it that the feelings are fresh. Yeah. I, you know, you know, to, to the, to your latter point, I've always, I've always had a good memory about those kind of things. When I talk to friends, like say from high school and we want to really live most, I will remember things. These, these that, would have been your constituents. These were my constituents. <laughs> I was their leader. When I'm talking to my vast constituency, I try to call them together. You know, I invite a hundred to show up. Um, but I, um, for, yeah, I, for fundraisers <laughs> for the future office holders coming in, yeah. speaker at the fundraiser for this, for the next student council VP. Exactly. You give me ideas, Scott, this is not good. But, but the thing is, is that you, um, you know, you, I, I, I saw firsthand how that slippery slope happens. You know, first I wasn't going to get Vicodin from my doctor for a kind of a semi BS reason. Did that. Second, uh, I ran out of Vicodin. I needed more. I convinced myself to go to Pill Hill in the Tenderloin and get some. And it's not something, obviously, I would ever consider that I would have done. But, you know, the, the thing was, is there's so many more steps. And you see it in AA meetings. You see, I mean, I hear it all the time from people who, you know, they started as someone with the mortgage and kids and some kind of responsibility, and they ended up, like, literally in the gutter. Now, and the crazy thing about addiction is you deny it even when it's happening. And and so, you know, I was... What is, clear- the, what is the motive yeah. to for denial, you think? Like, is it the shame? Is it the feeling of powerlessness? Like, what? why do you think the, the tendency for denial is so powerful? What's the center of gravity there? Yeah, it's, it's a really good, it's a really good question. Um, you know what? It, that's, that is the mystery. Honestly, I, I, I really do not know, but I know I hear it. Uh, you know, I, I, um, I, I have it myself. I, I really don't know what it is, but when, when you're doing something, you really, that's why they talk about, um, um, your, your bottom, because there's things that can shine through. So, you know, in such an extreme fashion, I have a scene like that in my book that you just simply can't deny it. It somehow breaks through. I mean, I literally think there's a part of your id when you're an addict that actively hides what's happening from you because you're, and I remember it's me. I have a family members that have been this way where I, I remember being on the other side of it and just saying like, are you kidding? You don't think you have a problem? And, and no, I don't I mean. And, and the funny thing, Scott, is that you also, you get really mad when someone questions you. Like when my wife was saying I was drinking too much, it just, and this is, again, I don't know where this comes from, but I would just be like, Oh, I would get so mad and bitter. And, and it just seems so bizarre. Now you would think you would have some awareness, like, okay, I can see why she's being mad, but you don't, it just hits you on that id. And you're like, how dare you? I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, 
Any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Press, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalker, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. It's interesting because you you wind up leaving this job, starting a kind of PR firm with your wife. You you, you figure out a kind of exit strategy, which is beneficial to you. And you decide that like you're going to invest in cryptocurrency and in, 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 in the sort of blockchain sort of technology kind of stuff. And it's funny because you talk in the beginning of the book how the two ledger accounting system changed Western business, right? Like the debit credit. Yeah. And this is the sort of, sort of three ledger accounting system that really could decentralize so much in commerce and economics that actually where people who have talents and entrepreneurial ambition and stuff could the idea is it, it could be right a, a a an opportunity for people like that to be productive outside the corporate structure which is i think some of the reason why this stuff as you're studying it became really alluring to you right yeah and that was the thing that was so great amazing and also confusing was that you know my career was uh, sort of an example to me about how maybe someone with talent could screw it up for themselves and maybe the institutions didn't work um, and and I so I saw the benefits of something called ethereum the crypto I eventually bought whereas Bitcoin decentralized money and it's this great store of value. Ethereum decentralizes business and finance. And I, I, we probably don't want to go too deep into that, but basically it's peer-to-peer and there's no central hierarchy or server that's making all the rules, taking the cut, um, verifying everything. The trust machines, I call them in my book. It's uh, these things, Ethereum for business, it, the transactions and business and economic activity are verified by all the various participants in the network and the business. And we aren't there yet and we won't be there next year where there's good progress, but in a decade, two, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, where this where this goes. But at the, at the time, I, my, intellectually, I'm, I'm, I'm a person of passions and intellectually, I, I went down this rabbit hole, as we call it, further than anything I had ever done before. I mean, I literally was consuming content like 10, 12 hours a day in addition to a full-time job and raising a family, uh, you know, crappily sometimes, sadly for me. Um, but it, but in addition to that, though, man, it, my addictive personality was right in there with it. It was like this holy or unholy mix of inspiration and escapism and addiction and trying to write the chip on my shoulder. And it created this, this sort of like um, chemistry that could explain what I did, um, which was just as crazy probably as, as going to Pill Hill and trying to get drugs. Yeah, because you just basically, t- you say that, you know, your wife had said, because, you know, in your sort of manic phases and sort of, you know, kind of uh, more eccentric kind of st- struggles with addiction and work and stuff that you'd forgotten to pay the bills a few times. And so your wife managed the day-to-day bills, and but you still managed the investments. 
And so you decide to take a hundred grand out of your savings, right? Out of your retirement. And you're going to go put this into Ethereum. And you say to your wife, I did it after, which is, is, I guess this is on the premise that's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. And you tell her after you do it. And she's like, what? I, 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 and you, she says, okay, she strangely, fascinatingly agrees to it as long as you take her on all these and the family on these dream vacations. So you make this kind of amazing bargain. I'm like, wow, this could be a film. Like, this is fascinating. <laughs> like, yeah. I couldn't believe the bargain you two came to. Yeah, it was. And that was that was the thing that people are most amazed by. And, you know, throughout after writing the book, uh, writing the book and afterwards, I went through everything carefully with her and just said, hey, is this this is what happened, right? I mean, that scene for sure. But even later, there were other things where she didn't want to talk about it. She compartmentalized it. She said, you can do what you want. She was not at all interested in it. There were times where I thought if, uh, you know, we had our entire life savings wrapped up in this and I had lost my job and was working as a consultant, you know, starting off slow. There were times where I thought if I hadn't brought it up, she would never have brought it up. And a part of it is that in her family, unlike mine, they don't really talk about money. They're not comfortable talking about money. Um, and part of it was she's always just been one of those people. I hear Bill Clinton was like this, could compartmentalize. And she's always been like that. And then the third thing, which is kind of you know nice and also makes me sad, is that what she said later was like, you were really happy and you were, you were really articulate. You were inspired. And, you know, I had just gone through this recovery process with the drugs and the alcohol. I had had this horrible experience at this last company, six years where I was really, you know, kind of downtrodden and, and, and feeling really low self-esteem. And so it, that was a part of her calculus as well. Like I said, in the book it makes her either, either a spiritual healer of great power or a dangerous psychopath. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because sometimes, like, it sounds like a strange kind of like codependence and yet real love for you. Like, there's probably like a mix of both, right? Like, you know, like the, the, the strange things about her family system came up in weird ways and her real love for you that, that sort of allowed this strange bargain. <laughs> You're right. You're right. That's exactly it. It, it was, it did. I, I've never really thought too much, you know, too deeply about her family history and all that. Very nice and normal family, but they don't really talk about money like that. And, and I think maybe that was the seed that, that sort of, it, she, she sort of feels it's unholy to talk about it. And that's kind of admirable in a lot of ways, admirable in a lot of ways, but it doesn't easily make it a, a, a topic for like very thoughtful, sort of like unemotional talk. Whereas for me, it, it, I could always talk about money with no problem. So you, so you put this hundred grand. I love at one point in the book, you talk about like these kinds of investments. You're, you're on your Gemini app or whatever. You're looking at all these things, you know, looking at the trades and everything. And you're like, it's like blackjack. Like, okay, you have a 19, you know, the dealer will hit a seven and get 21. Like, it's just ama like, amazing how this thing can feel. And you get to the point where you've lost like 60% of the investment easy. Like you're down to like 40 grand. Right. Yeah. And, and you fascinatingly, like, <laughs> there's some runs on the like like the like ethereum it drops right and you're like i could be a whale while it's dropping i'm gonna buy more stock <laughs> like you should like walk away from the table right when you're on a lose you're like no this is the time to go all in and you become a whale you actually get a mass of this of share in in this blockchain um startup yeah. Yeah. It's the, the crypto, the ether, which is the cryptocurrency, the Ethereum blockchain. And yeah, I mean, that's the thing. And there it is. There's my addictive personality and also my inspired side. I mean, Scott, I was just 
positive. I mean, I just, I just can't describe the certainty that I had. And again, I was consuming 10 to 12 hours of content a day for a year or whatever it was. I was going to meetups. I was listening to podcasts. Well, I was would on you Reddit. Say outside of like the, the tech people that was actually designing the, the actual, you know, infrastructure of it technically, would you be like one of the most knowledgeable people in the world about it? I, I wouldn't go that far. And the, the thing about crypto is the tech is so critically important. And I understand it at a high level, but you go one minor level below. And these guys are like the green berets of tech, these blockchain developers. And I get lost. But but in terms of at that time, okay, and at a non-technical level, I knew like everything. I mean, I was, and I was not just learning it. I was like in my brain concept, putting it in context and thinking here. And there were a few times where there are like old timers, uh, like OGs as we call them in crypto. And, and I was still relatively new and I, and I did know more, not about how it worked, but how this project fit into here and what their coin issuance was. And it, it was, you know, a little shocking to me. You realize how, well, how far have I gone? Yeah. And so I wondered, is that what keeps you going in these moments? Like, you know, it's interesting because you think about like, like Donald Trump, right? Who like, he doesn't have like, like he kind of won a pulling an inside straight. Right. And it looks like he's going to double down and try that strategy again. And so, so I've heard some, you know, political pundits say, well, here's the thing. Anybody that gets elected president, you think you're definitely the smartest person because you did it. And he kind of did it against the odds. Right. And so I wonder, like, is the tendency to double down in the hard times? Cause like, look, I'm the guy in the room that knows the most about this. Like, so does that yeah. kind of reinforce like this intuition? Like, cause it's not like I see anybody else that knows more who say, who, who has a better perspective. So why not listen to myself? Yeah. And the thing that that's exactly right. And, and it was, you know, we, we had a great financial advisor ensemble capital, Sean Sanders Stockton, who's just amazing and really helped us with this. But we, we found a new, um, a new tax guy who we loved and I describe it in the book and he, we had the same values. We were talking about our kids. Um, this guy's from Africa. He's got this great voice. He sounds like God. And after we got through the small talk, he says, uh, well, I've done my own research and I'm convinced that cryptocurrency is for money laundering and you should get out of it as, at your soon as possible opportunity. And Eileen, of course, is a little shaken, but for me, it was music to my ears because Scott, I had spent so much time not just studying it, but studying who was a fan of it. And at this time, you had all these business consultants from Deloitte and all these companies, Goldman, not that I wanted Ethereum to like rebuild the, the corporate structure, but all of these really smart people from all over the place were, were, were rallying to the Ethereum blockchain, which is now the, the dominant blockchain, not in terms of price, but in terms of development. And, and it was, it was when I would hear these outliers, people that hadn't really studied it and compare it with these underground crazy podcasts I was on. And, you know, like they weren't like yours. These are like maybe have like 50 listeners and you would listen to it about all aspects, but I would see these real minds and I was just absolutely convinced. You know, at the did time, did you know? Did you have the sense though that that accountant did that? Yeah, there is a pretty dark underside to this, where it's money laundering and stuff like that. There's interest in this sort of stuff that's sort of the dark yes. arts. Yes, and there is there there is an underside to crypto, and it was kind of the predominant story in thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen, Silk Road, and um, and all that Dred Scott, Dred Scott pirate or whatever it was that there's definitely is that that underside but the crazy thing about crypto is that actually um money laundering is a very hard thing to do with crypto because two for two reasons one is transactions 
can be tracked on a blockchain. There's ways to make them private, but unlike a US wire transfer, if you have, you know, traditional money laundering skills on a blockchain, the feds have, have figured out how to track this stuff. The second thing is, um, what's the difference between now and 2015 is that the, the fiat, the places where you get US dollar, euro out of crypto are now pretty highly regulated. So you can turn your crypto in another crypto, turn it in another crypto, but getting it into cold hard cash and fiat is, uh, it, you, you, you're gonna need to do KYC, know your customer, you're gonna have to give your ID, things like that. Now people like me, like I love the fact that crypto is like, a, you know, a bit radical, that it can like, you know, disrupt some of the power structures like corporations and central banks, but I, I, I believe in uh, some regulation for sure. And so that doesn't really bother me. I think it's probably necessary for it to get to the next level of growth. Gee, I mean, so here's the, the, uh, I've heard this line on the whole blockchain stuff. Like, so yeah, it's the, how is it not just going to become the fact that like when the, it gets successful, that the mega corporations are spied up and they'll, you know, like, and they'll manipulate it for more of a sort of hegemonic hold on the economy. And do you worry about that? Yeah, I, you know, the, the thing, the thing that corporations have tried to do, um, and I'm not even saying it's all bad, but they've tried to, the, the beauty, the beauty about a blockchain is that it's a public chain. Anyone can join in, buy a token, use that token to run what we call decentralized apps on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, and, and you are sort of free to, in, in many ways to do your business without gatekeepers. What corporations, have done is that the tech is so powerful for Ethereum. Um, you know, it's like it's it's going to be on every the tip of everyone's tongues for the next few decades. What they've tried to do is create private chains. You get all the efficiencies of a semi decentralized system where you don't need to spend all this money to verify everyone's who they say they are in a, in a, in a transaction. You use a blockchain, you get around that, but they're private chains, meaning they're controlled by certain rule makers. And this is also what Libra, Libra would be Facebook's coin. Um, it has some decentralized qualities, but it's ultimately, uh, centralized. And, 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 in, and in that, so that, so that's kind of the path they're going. They could eventually plug in with the public Ethereum blockchain and it could be more decentralized. But, um, you know, Scott, I, I, I've, I, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure. Like, uh, what's going to happen in the future? I think there are ways, just like anything else, that, you know, big oligarchies, oligarchs, whether, you know, whether they're corporations or the Chinese government or something like that, tries to get a handle on crypto. I think crypto, um, and the, the, the brilliance of Satoshi Nakamoto's invention, Bitcoin started it all. The way that the, that a blockchain works, it's probably the, the, the most resistant uh, mechanism in the economy in the world today to being overrun by a big power with lots of money and, uh, and, and, and ways to, to influence. It's not impossible. And you can do it with the smaller cryptos, the little ones, but for the big ones like Bitcoin and Ethereum, very hard to do that. So you wind up making this plan that, uh, you, you're going up, down, up, down. You, you make this crazy sort of all in move and it works and the, your stock goes up and you wind up in a pretty great position where you went from, okay, we've almost recovered our, our investment to we've doubled it. We've tripled it. We quadrupled it. And so you decide that you get out, you, you have this price point where if the thing if bottoms out, you're going to sell it at the level where you get like 540 grand. So you could get back your initial investment and the taxes and stuff like that. Right. So you, you kind of, yeah. you reconcile yourself to that and yet you're still kind of playing the market and it goes more up, down, more up, down, more up, down. Right. I mean, beyond your wildest dreams, 
Like, I mean, how much when it when you make that decision with your wife, you sit down the, with the financial planner and stuff, and you say, "All right, this is our plan. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna get out. Uh, you know, if 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 it drops below to the point where you know we can't recoup our investment, and pay the taxes. How high did you think you you, you like? What in your mind? How is this gonna play out? Like when you made that yeah. decision, where did you see it going? <clears throat> well, so at the time, I you know. It got to a high of I bought it. I bought it at about an average price of about twelve dollars and fifty cents, um, and I sold it. Uh, well, I'm trying to think about spoilers here, but I sold it at a very high dollar amount, not the top, but near the top, and uh, it, it eventually topped out at fourteen hundred. And since we've been in a bear market for a year and a half, but um, Scott, I at the time, you know these these Reddit like uh, our ETH trader and our ETH finance. People are talking about price predictions, and there are lots and lots of them. <clears throat> and see, the thing is that I thought eventually it was going to hit five thousand, and I still think it will because at that level, the entire Ethereum blockchain will not even be worth Facebook, one company. And this is a technology that could, you know, could could underpin uh, a, a very large economy and perhaps even the World Wide Web. So I thought that it would eventually get that high, but I thought, Scott, that it was going to happen when real people started to use it, maybe in a year or two from then, or three or four or five. And and it started to go up kind of like on its own just through the speculation in 2017, which was just the craziest crypto bull run um, of all time. But the thing you don't account for that no one accounts for is, you know, you say, oh, I'm going to wait. I'm going to sell it when it gets to 3000 And then it goes to whatever it is. And you have like $2 million that you could acquire, you, that you could realize if you sell it. So that's why no one can, can make it to the top because at some point, you know, the, the pressure is too great. No matter how, uh, intensely you're into the mania of crypto and the belief that it's going to go great. And you want to be a hodler, which is this crypto meme meaning, you know, holding on for dear life. Uh, no matter what, because you believe in it and you're going to go to the moon and all that. But at some point you look at the cold, hard dollars, especially someone like me and you have a family and kids. And, you know, even if you're addicted to this stuff, which I was, you have to seriously consider selling it. So, yeah, you know, it's funny too. Would you say the spoiler thing? Like, I, I, I think I just, when I read the book, I don't think I took the title very, I, I don't want to say seriously, but it didn't have a prescriptive effect on how I read the book. So I'm sitting there thinking, he's going to lose it. He's going to lose it. Like, I, I was like, don't, Good. I'm reading, I'm like, don't lose it. Don't lose it. Don't lose it. Like, I'm like, no. I mean, there's this one scene where you're like, where you're doing a little well, you're doing okay. And you're like to your wife, I just got rid of our, my only client in our personal PR business. And she's like, you did what? And I'm like, oh my God, she's going to divorce him. She's going to divorce him. Like, this is, he can't do this. So I mean, it's, it's so great. Like, you're, the way you tell the story, I'm like, oh my God. This is not going to go well. Yeah, that's good because I, you know, the title, like I said, I really want people to read this outside of crypto and the title is what really grabbed them. But I was worried about the spoiler piece. This is my first book. You know more than I do about how, you know, spoilers work and all that. But that it's funny. You bring up something interesting, which is that Eileen, you know, it, people should know she's not a pushover and that scene exhibited it. Um, it wasn't that she was kowtowed or too quiet to say something or like I was always in charge of our marriage, like the exact opposite. Like she, she, she is very very strong willed and we really do everything together. Um, and, and so, um, I basically, it was very clear that, uh, she, she was, uh, she was, 
she, when I, when I, when I did that, when I got rid of that, uh, client, um, she was extremely, extremely upset with me more so than when I even made the original crypto bet without asking her, um, because, you know, work to her is very important. And the fact that I was, I think, uh, quitting my job reminded her of much darker days when I was addicted to Ambien and going off the deep end. It's interesting too, like when you began to like consider like when you go like decide okay we got to cash out like and and sort of take you know we got to quit while we're ahead which is i'm like wow i can't believe he decided to finally do that i'm like thank you thank you god he did it but you're sitting in like the bank like paying off houses and things like this and they're like uh did this money come from drugs i mean you get the standard like (laughs) you look like a criminal right i mean like it's interesting this legit banker is like asking you like Come on, are you money laundering? Like, like, like you can't really have all this money. Yeah, it was a little bit like trading places, you know, where I, you know, suddenly when they saw the bank account, uh, they, the teller's jaw just about hit the floor, and she said, "Well, you're in our private bank, aren't you?" And I said, "I don't think so. Am I? Maybe are? Is that is that what this is?" She goes, "Oh no, 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 no. Let me take you over here." And she took me to another part of the bank. It was crazy. It was so it was so hilarious, and I was they just like this really, is literally how the other half lives. Yes, that's what I felt. It was like. <laughs> It's like, oh no, no, you're with the other half. <laughs> yes, it was crazy, and and I, they were they were just they brought me and you know they they like I said I had to do some business a few months earlier. They saw they said, oh, we took took away your wire charges, you know, and I said, wow, thank you. It was like you know eighty five bucks, and they said, oh, it is the least we can do. Don't worry, and it was just like it's so funny. The people that don't need this, they're like bending over backwards, and and this is the same bank that pulled our line of equity during the financial crisis. And I describe how that really put us in the hole financially. Um, but it's, it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a strange, strange thing. So, I mean, you, you now have this company, Zealot Communications, right? You still have the PR firm. Is that, is that, was that the name the whole time uh, when you were running the PR firm? It was. Yeah. We, yeah. Eileen had a firm called Scout PR and we kind of joined forces when I left uh, Acme and we, we called it Zealot PR. That was her. She's, she's so smart. She came up with the, with the name. Not that, you know, that's so brilliant, I mean, it but does, it was perfect. It, it, it doesn't communicate moderation. Like, I mean, are we, <laughs> we going to be zealots for you? Is that the idea? We'll, we're zealous for your interests. Exactly. And you know, it was, well, and her clients were all set, so they didn't care what she needed, but they knew she was great. But you know, I think it still exists today, but back then in 15, 16, um, there was, there was, uh, people that were into crypto were a much smaller minority, even though crypto is not on the tip of everyone's tongue, like it is now during the bull market. Um, more people know about it. And there's a lot of people that are just sort of like mildly interested back then. It was more like a religious sect. I mean, it was like, you knew someone, you talk to someone and they turns out they knew about crypto. You just like, okay, let's go sit down. And you just talk each other's ear off. And like what I said, being in crypto's Less like, you know, an update to your LinkedIn profile and more like a full religious conversion, especially back then. Um, it was like asking someone when you found God almost because, uh, you know, and I don't mean that to be sacrilegious. Of course, it's not that. But it was like uh, some kind of transformation that you had, uh, had, had, had gone through when you saw the power of this decentralizing technology, which, of course, was fueled by this possibility uh, to get rich, which was just this like – amazing cocktail, uh, ex- you know, excuse the expression considering my background, but that's what it was. Yeah. It's interesting because you don't, it, it, there's this, there's this joke. How do you know someone's an atheist, a CrossFitter or a vegan? 
they tell you. Uh, <laughs> so I guess I guess like crypto is added to the list. You know, it's, it's, totally. It's, uh, it's perfect. But, but when you think of zealot, you don't usually describe. Oh, that person, such a great guy. He's such a zealot. Like you just don't ever hear that. Yes. You know I mean? like, yes. You know, no, you're right. Like, yeah. In fact, there was used casually. Like I think there was that book about Jesus a few years ago that was a big bestseller. Um, and yeah, yeah, it was by, uh, I, I know the book. Yeah. Yeah. G, yeah. The zealot. Yeah. The, was it called uh, the zealot? Or zealot think, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was a guy who, um, it might even be of Islamic background, the guy that wrote it, but I remember yes, the book yeah, that yeah, was yeah. the one that was yeah, the one because I remember they, escaping me. Yeah. 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 And some people criticized him for that. And it was, it was a really good and interesting book, but anyway, yeah, it, it, it felt like, I mean, back then that was a real selling point. I mean, it was about true believers, you know, it was about true believers. And I had this great, like everyone's got their crypto Genesis story. And my Genesis story was a good one. I came from, you know, fortune 10 company at a sort of mid executive level and, uh, you know, kind of washed out of that. I mean, I, of course I described it as me leaving, <laughs> I want to say I got washed out then, but, and, and then finding this, this whole new kind of way. And, you know, the people at the company, when I was leaving at my going away, uh, 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 we had like a toast in the corporate, ki- corporate kitchen for me. And I went on this sort of like speech about crypto and they thought like, wow, he's, he's got some like challenges here. He's, he's not just like, like he's losing. going off the day. Yes! Like he's, 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 he's gone. Completely. It was like I was started speaking like Chinese in front of them and they were like, you know, they'd only been half paying attention. Suddenly everyone's like, oh my gosh, like this guy really, he's really, this is going to be interesting what happens to this guy. When you would like give that speech, did people look at you like you were in Amway or something? They did actually. Yeah, they did. It was funny because Scott, it was like at first when I would give that speech, when it was when it was low or before it had gone up, it was like I was in Amway. And then, like I say, I mean, after it went up, I mean, I, and it was two years ago now, but it, it crashed into mainstream media and into consciousness, especially here in Silicon Valley, but everywhere. And I was like a prophet. Like it was like, you know, my, my insecurity was gone. I was like high on crypto and I believed it at the, at the rational side and every part of me. And I could just like, I swear, I could just convince people to, to buy it so easily. Even if that wasn't my goal, I would just tell them about my story. I would, you know, tell an anecdote, but it was just like, I was like perfectly, I was like the perfect communicator, um, during this moment. And suddenly I was like bombarded, like people, I didn't even know, I would know I was into crypto, but you know, they would tweet at me, Facebook posts, instant messages, they call Eileen. I mean, and it was great when it was going up. And then, you know, I describe a lot of highs and lows in the book times like security concerns and potential hacks and crashes. And I needed to play it right. And it was at sometimes it was a real burden. And I just wanted to tell everyone like, shut up and hold it. Ethereum. I'm curious, like, what is most different about your life now that you've sort of become a crypto millionaire? I mean, what is, like, what what has changed most significantly for you on a day-to-day basis? I would say, yeah, that's 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 a good question. A couple things. First of all, okay, in terms of things we bought, um, the biggest thing that we buy now is trips. We take these we take these trips like all over the place with the kids. All five of us. We went to Japan and this like high end travel service, and um, and we would have like it was like it felt like being a celebrity in Japan in Tokyo. It was like unbelievable. We would have it was very expensive. We would have never ever done that before, and it was kind of hard to do it, even though we can I guess can afford it now. Um, so the travel is a big difference. The other thing is like, you know, and this is one I'm still coming in terms with, you know how like, um, 
I, I like something fell off my car. I still drive my same car. It's a Honda minivan, and I I just I like it. I'm comfortable with it. I'm not a car person. I I don't really feel the need to go buy a fancy car. Although my wife now has an has an Audi, but you know the bottom plastic fell off something, so I've got to take it to the body auto body shop, and I got a high estimate for it, and I think it's a ripoff. But now I have to say, okay, do I really want to take it to another auto body shop and like compare prices, or should I just say? This is, I'm going to pay 300 bucks too much. Like it's a wash. And I've been doing more of that and it feels just like vaguely wasteful all the time. Uh, but the, the, the biggest thing though, Scott is, you know, there's all those cliches about how money doesn't make you happy and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And yeah, that's true to a certain degree. But, um, but you know, it, it, what it does is, no money concerns. Uh, we, we're not at all. We don't have any money concerns anymore as a family. So Eileen and I simply can't fight about money um, at this point. Knock on wood. Um, and, and then the other thing is, is that I don't have to. I don't. I don't have to work now. It sounds crazy. I don't want to sit around and like play tennis and watch TV all day. I want to write. I want to do other projects. And like that is an unbelievable blessing, especially for me because you know it, it never really did work for me. Um, and I. That's the thing. I, I. I don't want to ever forget how lucky we are. And you know, and it, it's the thing I think that um, that maybe a few people in our circle resent a little bit. Um, they see me walking down you know Burlingame Avenue and flip flops in the middle of the day and they're racing off to a meeting and and uh, uh and, and, I, and I've heard some sort of comments through the grapevine mainly people are like happy for us but you know it, it is that that's a big difference in my life and it's an amazing blessing you say in, in towards the end of the book it's a struggle not to look for the next big thing I don't want to ruin it all no matter how many scores I still need to settle I mean how how real is that on a day-to-day basis like are you are people Hey, get back in the game, get back in the crypto. I mean, how much do you want? I mean, I wonder how much of the th- the thrill of the hunt that that got you there. How much do you miss that? Um, I miss it a lot. Um, I it, you know, it's it, it's not so much crypto. I feel like, you know, I've still got a good good m- amount of crypto, but I've kind of like done that. You know, gosh, it's so nice to be able to say that. Jeez, uh, you know, this bear market right now, many people didn't get out in time. And, uh, you know, so, but it's true. I, I've, I've kind of done that. And I don't think I'm going to get the same high, excuse the expression. If it, if, if it just goes up again, although I want it to, the, the next thing I moved to right away was telling this story in this book. And, you know, I, I've always, I've always written blogging was a big part of my thing. So not only was this a blessing because of the money, but also gave me this amazing story to try to see if I could go at it and write this book. And I poured my myself into this book every day. I've literally worked on it like every day. I, I can't even think of one, even if I was 10 minutes for two years. But but Scott, um, when the book's over, I do know that I have a moment where I really need to take a step back and, and, and not just decide like what I want to do, but like I really do need to come to terms with you know, I, I've not been Zen. I've not been very focused on others. I've been, you know, Scott, I'll, I'll even walk around still walking the dog and listening to music. And what do you think I'm imagining? I'm imagining this amazing thing I did. I'm imagining this book being well received. And, and, you know, we all have that a little bit. We have our Walter Mitty moments, but, but I also recognize it as like, I'm sort of like looking for the next high. And so, you know, it's going to be an interesting period once this book kind of, you know, comes out and the, the splash is over. And, and, uh, and so I'm kind of, preparing myself and i've got some ideas but i'll just have to take that when it comes you, you there's a book by an author named brennan manning uh, that I, i'm fond of he's an author and he says you know, he talks about dealing with his imposter right and he you call i think your imposter flip side right yeah, like yeah he says you know the problem with your imposter is you want to do one of two things you either want to sh- just ignore him 
throw him in the closet or choke him to death, right? And he said, the problem is like, he's you. And this guy was a Catholic priest. He said, the problem is I, I, I needed to take my imposter into the love of God so that the light of that love could shrink him to the point where he could be healthy, uh, as opposed to sort of killing him or suppressing, because that's, you know, and you said something in the book that I read and I resonated with, and I thought made me think of Manning there. You said, flip side is still with me, and no matter how much I want to pretend I've overcome him, I have not. He saved me. And that, that how, how has your imposter, how has flip side saved you? Like, could you, could you speak yeah. to that? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, as I, as I describe in the book, you know, I, I suffered in addition to the addictions, I had, you know, really horrible clinical depression as a kid. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, when I was in seventh grade and then in college and it, it changed me, you know, there was a period in high school where I thought I was going to be like a golden boy my whole life. And, you know, everything was going to come easily. I mean, you were vice president. (laughs) I would have made president. Scott, don't remind me. You were like Joe Biden. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, I'd always and also ran, and it started in high school, Scott. Um, but I, you know, so there's always been a part of me when something good is happening where I'm trying to prove that I can get back to being that golden boy, and you know, and and I, um, and, and it, it it drives me. I mean, it drives me. It's a chip on my shoulder. Um, but you know, it's like when I was in college going through this depression, it drove me to really take my studies seriously for the first time. And I, I really became a very serious student and uh, got heavily into, you know, various history and English and politics. And, and so it's, it's, it's a tough one and I don't have it all figured out, but part of my problem at work was that I was just focused on taming flip side because that was the flip side was the part of me that would make the stupid, the, the joke that might be funny, but went over the line. It was the one who maybe got too chatty with the CEO and so the more I tried to tame him, though, the more I was like sort of like neutered. I was like a, a feeble version of myself. And I, I was not – I didn't have that kind of like fire, that mojo or whatever. And so really what this crypto chapter was is he was – I let him loose, man, and he went crazy. But you know when also I let him loose? When I went to Pill Hill and bought the drugs. So it, it's something I'm going to have to come to terms with. But I, I can't – you know, I, I can't put a story like a like a happy ending on this where I've conquered all my addictions and all my, you know, self-aggrandizement and all the different things that make up the complicated thing I call flip side because he's still there. And and I, and I need to, you know, I need to figure out a way and, and to, to keep him with the sort of like rational, sane, put the brakes on side of my character that keeps me and my family safe. Well, I, I look forward to how that journey unfolds for you. And I hope to, that you keep telling stories. Uh, Confessions of a Crypto Millionaire is a great story and it's, it's real. It's your story. And so thanks for telling it and spending some time talking to me about it. Hey, Scott, thank you. And I just want to say, I, I, love, I love your podcast. It, it's great. You, you, you have such interesting people. So keep it up yourself. Thank uh, you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. 
And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Dan for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Confessions of a Crypto Millionaire. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.